Father, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and read your word and share your word and glorify you. It is a mystery to us how it's possible that we can do this. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless the reading of your word and the hearing also in Christ's name. Our text is in Genesis 4, and I'll read verses 16 through 22. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahushael, and Mahushael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. May God bless his word. The title of the message is perhaps odd. I like odd titles. So, work is inescapable. It is a positive message, I hope. But it's not a very positive uh, concept in our society. Lots of people don't like work, and they joke about it. Many people want to escape work, and it is perhaps their dream And I think many Christians are included in that. We are not absolved of this desire to be free from work, I think. Uh, Years ago, uh, I've worked in a cubicle for a long time. Uh, I had an office when I first started work at uh, Hughes out in California, but then they moved us to a new building in about a year, and that was my first cubicle, and I don't know that I've been out of one since. Uh, But... uh, A few years ago at UP, I went to someone's office, and they had a picture hanging on their cubicle wall, and it showed a picture of a cubicle with a hole cut out of the floor and a big pile of dirt next to it. Someone had escaped from their cubicle. Uh, There are two bumper stickers that I think comes to everybody's mind when they can think about work, really. The worst day, and then insert your favorite sport there, the worst day fishing is better than the best day working. And the other one is, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. These are very common on the bumpers. I've seen them in here in Omaha quite a bit. I looked up some more. I can't say I've seen these on bumpers, but I just think they're really good. I'm a victim of cruel and unusual employment. I hate coffee. It keeps me awake at work. If work is so terrific, why do they have to pay you to do it? And then this one is for the ladies. I don't want to forget the ladies. And it's very, very blunt. Housework is evil. It must be stopped. And this was my favorite. It's a little crude. I'd tell you to go to hell, but I work there, and I don't want to have to see you every day. So see, our attitudes towards work are captured by these pithy little phrases. A lot of people hate work. And even if you actually do love your work, You have your days. And that describes me, really, I think. So now, I do actually love my work now probably more than I ever have. And yet, I have bad days. And so there are days when 
uh, work isn't nearly as much fun as it is normally. Uh, and people often say, are we having fun yet, or things like that. And, uh, and I'll say, that's the only reason I come to work, is to have fun. My pay is really a fringe benefit. It's not really the primary reason I come. But we just love to joke about this. Mondays, Fridays, uh, you're so sad it's Monday, it's, you're so glad it's Friday. I hear it in the elevator all the time at work. I mean, it's, it's really, if you were to uh, enumerate the number of times you hear different topics in the elevator, that's probably number one, is if it's Monday, it's doom and gloom, and if it's Friday, it's, hey, I'm out of here. So what is this with work? And especially for us Christians, you know, we are called to be different, and this is one way, I believe, in which we are to be different. And the first thing you really must remember, and I believe most here would, is that work is not a part of the curse. Work preceded the curse. God worked first. It was good. He did good work. And then, after he created man, he modeled work for man in the garden. He brought Adam in, and then he made the animals as Adam is watching, and then he brought the animals to Adam and had him name them. So now he's doing this mentoring. He's showing Adam how to work, what work involves, what it means. So see, work by God's design is meaningful, and that's the thing we probably have the most grief with. It is honorable, and it is worthwhile. See, we understand these last two, but is it truly meaningful? I think some of us question that at times. Uh, the dominion mandate, what I actually covered last week but didn't cover, because I covered only the image part of it, not the mandate part of it, but the, the uh, dominion mandate says we are to work. That's what it, It's a two-parter. We are commanded to fill the earth. Some of us might not think that's too much work, but after you've had your babies, you know how much work it is. And then the second part is we are to subdue the earth. Both of these require work and sacrifice, and we'll get to more of that later. Both of these, to fill the earth and subdue it, are, I believe, being undermined by our society, by humanists in our society, people who don't hold to the Bible's standards. And uh, one of the things I'd mentioned to Scott, Scott referred to me during his opening, and I'll refer to his because we had a good conversation earlier. And uh, there was a man by the name of Thomas Malthus back in the early 1800s that wrote a essay on population that became very popular. Now, Malthus himself was actually a Christian, and he was opposing utopian views of man that from people who really weren't Christian. And yet, what he pointed out is that God appears to use famine and war to decimate the earth's population at intervals. Now, that might be true. But what he went on to say is that, well, it's also because the Earth's population is not sustainable. So in other words, if people keep becoming more and more numerous, God's got to kill them off. They're like bugs, you know, <laughs> you know, so God's got to do this. That's the part that really goes beyond the pale in terms of understanding what God would have us uh, humans around for. So man's position is as Lord and steward of the Earth. But it's really been challenged by modern humanists. And this is why. See, they oppose the fact that we are to procreate and fill the earth with humans. They really don't like that. Now, it does suit their lifestyle because they want to channel all of their disposal in income into making themselves comfortable and have a more enjoyable life. And so some don't have any children. 
And often they'll have only one, and sometimes they'll have two. There's like a his and hers uh, aspect to modern marriage and family, and that is often the case. But we, when we talk about populate the earth, we know it's more than one or two. It's more than a onesie-twosie thing. It's, it's, it's numbers, big numbers. Now, the other thing that they oppose too is this second part, and that is that we are to subdue the earth. Oh, that sounds horrific, doesn't it? That man is to subdue the earth, as if it's like some kind of bizarre monster that we're to conquer. Uh, but yet, but what God meant by subdue is to transform it, to take ownership of it, and to control it. And we err if we want to restore the earth to its prairie beauty, right? You can drive around Omaha and see restored prairies. I'm thinking, you drive 20 more minutes more and you see a lot of restored prairies. You know, they don't have to be restored. And yet, we just have this odd, romantic uh, way to amuse ourselves that we are going to get the earth back to its former glory. All man has done is corrupted it. So see, humanists oppose the two things that God told us to do in Genesis 1. So we have a job to do. First, we have to convince them that having families and children is a good thing, and subduing the earth is also a good thing. So we've got our work cut out for us. Mankind has a poor image in the eyes of modern humanists. Okay, now, I've talked about work, but let's define it. Uh, first, we know this, but it really does deserve to be stated. Work is not necessarily just what you do for a living. That's what receives the harshest criticism on the bumpers, as well as the, the, uh, the home life, right? The, the, uh, the, my wife has a thing at home saying that we have killer dust bunnies in our house. And so we can poke fun at the fact that the work at home is never done. It's something that's just continual, always there, always there, always gnawing at these poor housewives that are trying to keep ahead of it. But yet you fall behind. Uh, and so work is these two things. It's working outside the home for pay, and it's working inside the home to kind of make a home. But there are other aspects of work, too. I work in an odd industry. Uh, Steve and I work at the railroad. Keith works at the railroad. There are, amongst citizens in this country, people that we call foamers, affectionately. But we call them foamers because they foam at the mouth when they see railroads. They see trains. They see especially special cars like old steam locomotives or the old business cars. I mean, they photograph these like crazy. Uh, one of the first business trips I went on was out to North Platte and I rode on a train and it was a special. It's called a special train. And actually it even starts with the letter S. You read it in our symbols at work on our systems. So this special train actually had a steam locomotive on a flat car being transported out to North Platte. And we had so many people taking photographs of us. We were traveling and you'd see the same vehicle. They'd be here, they'd be all set up, they'd take photographs, and then an hour later, you'd see them further up the road. I mean, they must drive like maniacs to get up there because specials go fast. Coal trains get out of the way of specials. And so you're zooming along at 55, but still, those guys are flying on those side roads to get out there and take photographs of us. So these foamers, and, and back uh, like 15 years ago, I went to Chicago on a business trip, and I went with a fellow UP employee who is a... Homer. He takes a lot of pictures. We've published them internally, and his name is on a lot of photographs that are published internally. 
And he said, Rod, let's go to this uh, famous switching yard. It's like a, it's a busy section where lots of rails come through, and you have to throw switches in order to route the trains the right way on all these tracks. We went to this old switching house that's really long and had all these manual levers in it. And the man from UP that worked there was there, but there was also this other guy. He's like a dentist or something. And he's on his week's vacation, and he's traveled here to be this guy's worker. And so he's all excited, and the fellow will say, go pull switch 69. And he'd go running down there, throw switch 69, and come back like an eager puppy. That's a foamer. <laughs> this guy took a week off work to come work in this dingy building to throw switches for this guy. So that is work. But obviously, it's viewed differently from his perspective. So see, as you've heard the phrase, one person's trash is another person's treasure, well, one's, one person's daily job, the daily grind, is another person's vacation away. It's their little Shangri-La for a week. So now, work is anything we do to take dominion over our little piece of the earth. You have the forces of nature working against you, don't you? I mean... You have your own lazy nature, perhaps, your own tiredness, your own frailties as a human, but you also have what God has designed of this earth working against you. There's this entropy, this thing called entropy, and so it wants to destroy your work. It brings dust into your home, and you then have to work hard to get that out. Uh, Tabitha and I, a long time ago, decided that it was not fair that she should not work for money too, even though she, we had decided that she would remain home. So we negotiated a salary for her. And I think I've mentioned this to you before, but she earns a million dollars a day. I'm behind, I admit. <laughs> this is why eternal life in heaven will be useful for me because I, I will have tens of billions of dollars to pay to Tabitha. And she's not going to be my wife in heaven apparently too, I le later learned. So I, I have to pay that bill one day, and yet I will. I'm good for it. <laughs> now, sometimes when work is done for pay, the value of it is diminished in our eyes. And let me give you a perfect example. I worked with a fellow in the service, and this was over 30 years ago, and he was a good Samaritan. He was a good guy. He'd grown up Catholic, so he kind of believed in that there's this, you know, kind of... Uh, thermometer that you're working on throughout your life in order to get the good stuff in and such that you can hit the goal to get to heaven. And a uh, nice guy, great with cars. I mean, he, he was quite the mechanic. So when he was out on the road, he'd always stop for people. I mean, he loved that. He would stop and help people. And, and the rest of us who are clueless and don't know how to fix cars, he can tolerate us. Hey, yeah, here's how you do it. Well, Monday, we're in the office, and it had rained that weekend, and he was telling us a story about having stopped to help a woman change a tire. There was a lady on the side of the road. She was broken down, flat tire. And he stopped, went up, asked what the problem was. She told him. He says, I'll fix it. So she popped the trunk. He got the tire repaired and all this, right? In the rain. He's soaking wet. He's feeling very good about himself. She hands him a wad of bills out the window. And he takes the wad of bills, and he goes back to his car, and she goes on her way. And then we're hearing about the story. He says, she gave me this wad of bills, and they were all ones. She gave me $7 for changing her tire in a pouring rain. He was outraged. If she had not given him a dime, 
he would have been a happy man Monday morning. But here he was, outraged. So see, isn't it funny? He's got $7, but, oh, he, she, he was demeaned by this. So you see what I mean? Sometimes the money gets in the way of us feeling good about ourselves. He was the one that was benefiting, changing that woman's tire. You know, he's, one, he's closer to that thermometer, hit and go or whatever. So see, he feels diminished by this. Oh, I, I took this wonderful thing and it, it had been diminished by this money. So anyway, uh, what I want to talk about in terms of work, though, are kind of the things that are most core to us. And that is, we go outside of the home typically to work for pay, or we're inside the home trying to basically maintain a home. All the stuff we need to do inside our house to maintain a livelihood, maintain a home. So it's outside of the home for pay, inside of the home to maintain it. Caring for children, feeding them, cleaning the house, those types of things. Now the Hebrew word for work that is used in Genesis 1 and 2 is the word that is later used for those serving in the tabernacle. And it's serve. The root is serve. And so to work means to serve. So that's what really work boils down to, serving. And we know this, I think, deep down, but sometimes we just come to resent it. So working inside the home, for either any of us, our children, our wives, us, it involves sacrifice. We are serving our family with anything that we do in the home. When we are outside the home, now inside the home, it's easy enough to see the progress you're making, right? It's all too easy also to see your progress being destroyed. It's very sad, I know. Working outside the home can be frustrating because you're working at a job that you really don't feel perhaps even is necessary. What do I do? Is what I'm doing useful? And your boss, you could even go to your boss with your doubts. Is what I'm doing useful? I mean, why don't you fire me? You know what I mean? I mean, you're, you're that honestly concerned about the fact that you don't know why you're here. You're doing this stuff. I worked for the government. I've had these questions in my head. So it's a fearful situation that you're in when you're doubting the meaningfulness of what you're doing for money. You like the money. You're not complaining about the money. It's just, can I do something that seems more useful to people? And I would go to my boss when I was at NASA and ask him that. You know, what can I do that's really, really useful? And he didn't like getting that question because he really didn't care if what we were doing was useful. All he needed to make sure that he had enough money flowing in his organization to keep everybody paid. And he thought, you should be happy. You're getting a paycheck. You should be happier. I'm not even telling you to do anything. But I'm not happy when you don't tell me to do anything. So just very odd. We live in, a, in an odd time, and especially to those of us might, of you might relate to that. Now, if you're in private industry, that typically doesn't happen. You, you know, you have to earn your keep in a private industry. It can happen. There are lots of big companies with dead wood, and people don't know why they're there. And, and sometimes it's not through no fault of their own. They've, you know, they've been hired, and then their job goes away. You, I want to do something useful. What can I do that's useful? And they'd go and ask and help people. Uh, UP went through that before we knew, moved to our new building. We let many people go from IT, and that was the situation for some of them. It's just their jobs had kind of evaporated over time, and yet they were still there working for pay and didn't really have anything that they did. So those people are identified eventually and eliminated at a, at a for-profit company. Now, one thing, though, that we must realize, I think we know it, but we forget, is that we work 
for God, right? That's why we're here. The dominion mandate is all about us working for God, not working for anybody else. Now, true, God uses these surrogates on earth through which we channel our work, but ultimately, our work is for God. And God must have a purpose, right? Because God is a God of meaning. So what is the meaning? Well, again, it's hard. If you're, if you're confused by a company and trying to figure out where your place is in a company or in a bureaucratic administration, just think how hard it is to figure out what's going on in the whole world and what God could possibly be using me for in this. But you can't get past the fact, though, that it's God that's doing this, so you know it has meaning. You can excuse other humans that might be confused, but if God has you doing something, he has you doing it for a purpose, and so you should really figure it out. It would be best if you knew what it was, because then you can find yourself working with God and trying to accomplish what it is that you're doing. Now, God owns everything. God is everyone's ultimate employer. Job 41, uh, and actually we had a verse in that in our adoration, and uh, it's just remarkable how many things uh, kind of have connected. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. Psalm 24, 1. I have two others. Job 41, 11. Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. So you see what God is alluding to Job. If you had been here before me, sure, you might have a reason to say that's mine or that's mine or you owe me for this. But God is just saying, hey, I was here first. All this property is mine. I made it. It's mine. I let you use it, but don't be telling me that I owe you because I don't owe you a thing. Psalm 50, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. See, when he says that the cattle on a thousand hills are his, he's saying everything is mine. And if I want to eat a cow, I'll eat a cow. I don't care whose cow on earth you say it is. It's my cow. They're all my cows. See, this is what Laban was telling uh, Jacob, when he was trying to leave, wasn't he? Laban was acting like God. But he's not God. He's a man. But he was exercising God-like privileges over Jacob and his daughters. Just, just, that wasn't in there. That was just, that's a freebie. I'll charge you for the next one. Now, not all work is obviously designed to honor God. Years ago, for those of you that were here, I don't know how long ago, but we were all fighting Dr. John's being put in down there on 72nd Street. And I still don't understand what happened there. I mean, supposedly he was supposed to close shop. Supposedly we had work. But in the end, he ends up remaining open. And I remember being at the courthouse and seeing the fellow that, that uh, founded Dr. John's, and he's founded them, you know, planted stores all over the country. That is one evil-filled man. Oh, I don't know if you met him, but that man has a lot going on inside him. I think there's some demon living inside that man. He looked evil. And we're all down there at the courthouse, and we're trying to pray and kind of support our legal establishment and trying to get this guy out of there. But it didn't happen. And it's sad, but yet, is God surprised by this? Of course not. And yet, in part, places like that really exist as a reflection of where we are as a society. It's not God doing this to us. It's us doing this to us. So God has orchestrated the development of our world economy. Every nation on earth is his. And he leads it as he pleases. He gives the nations and kingdoms to whom he pleases. He gives the businesses to whom he pleases. 
And that's where we are now with this incredibly complex, integrated socially, nationally, economically. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing, I think, that God is knitting us together like this. But there's a goal. God is moving us towards something. God owns everything. That's just one principle that's in this book. I bought this book in 1984. I'd been working for Hughes Aircraft for a year. And I was not a very happy employee, I would admit. I had difficulty uh, wrestling with what am I doing here when my real love is God and Christianity over here. And yet, here is where I'm called to make a living. This is what I've been trained to do. And you just feel, you can't help but feel, I think, when you're young and you feel like this, like you're prostituting yourself. I should not be doing this. My heart isn't in this. And yet, that's why, in part, why I'm giving this lecture. Because, see, that's important. That's an important feeling that you need to work through as a young person. You need to come to uh, intellectual rest with the idea that God has a purpose for you, even if it necessarily doesn't involve full-time ministry. So for some of you, you might go into full-time ministry. For most of you, you won't. There is no diminishing of you in that role. A full-time minister is not here and then everything else falls below it. No, no, no. If God has a plan for you that doesn't involve full-time ministry, that is you. That is your purpose on this earth. And I just want you to know that and be comforted in that. Because that's something I lacked. But then I wasn't very honest, maybe, in talking to people about really what was in my heart in those years. I just felt like I'm unique. I'm different. I'm unhappy, but I can't let people know. But then you find out, oh, no, you're kind of typical, but it's just people don't talk about it. There are seven principles that he mentioned in his book. I'm going to mention six of them kind of briefly and walk through them. Let me just first mention them all. God controls kingdoms and companies. Your circumstances are designed by God. You are employed by Christ, not your company or your husband if you're in your home. Count your superiors worthy of honor in thought, word, and deed. Any of your superiors. You must trust the Lord to direct your career. Your status symbol must be the cross, not the dollar. So let's talk a little bit about each, each one of those. First, God controls kingdoms and companies. Uh, God said the cattle on a thousand hills are his. And this is another way of saying everything is mine. Nations and companies rise and fall. God's hand is directing it. So God rewards nations that do his will, and he punishes those that do not. And we've seen this in evidence in the Old Testament. Uh, this actually gives a great illustration of the fall uh, of uh, the city where, remember, uh, Daniel goes in and the mini mini turtle, uh, Cyrus coming in and conquering that. See, he dammed up the water into that city. That had been defended against. But what happened is they dried up the river. What should have happened is when the army got in there, they should have found closed doors, but they didn't. The doors were open. So see, God had arranged that 150 to 200 years earlier. It was prophesied that that's how that city would be conquered. Just phenomenal. But that's God showing us that he owns all the kingdoms, he owns all the businesses. Two, your circumstances are designed by God. And let me talk about this just briefly. Your circumstances at your job or in your home is exactly what I'm talking about. 
your circumstances may lead you to be discontent. If left by, on its own, that discontent will lead to resentment. You will resent your position, you will resent other people. If left untended, that resentment will lead to bitterness. And then bitterness will be like the spores of the dandelion just spreading throughout your life, throughout your, your uh, sphere of influence. You'll be affecting other people badly. So see, this is what happens. Your circumstances lead you down that path. So then, obviously, you have to head that off. You can't allow discontent to fester like that. In Philippians 4.11, Paul said, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. So what did he mean by that? But note, we easily slip past a word here that I think is extremely important. Paul said, I have learned, didn't he? We set Paul away up here. He's on this pedestal. But Paul said, I have learned through my circumstances to be content. So see, if Paul needed to learn it, then obviously we need to learn it. We're not born with this in our fallen nature. We are not content by nature. We must learn to be content. And we acquire it through experiences. God will do things in our lives. We will grow discontent. We will not head it off. We will go into resentment, go into bitterness. Try again later, right? So somehow you work yourself out of that, and now you're going back into it again. God does it again and again and again until we get it, until we head it off, until we learn to be content. Three, you are employed by Christ, not your company, or if you're in your home, not your husband. If your boss offends you, perhaps you become embittered. You could choose to punish him. You're just not going to do what you're supposed to do now. I'll show him. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. You don't go too far to where it's too obvious, but you undermine their authority, their operation in your world, in your life. You can potentially hurt that person in some way, not necessarily physically, but through some action, you can make them to be embarrassed or to not be as respected as maybe they could have been. And so it's like this little torpedo that you have in your hand. You can fire at them whenever you want. So see, their treatment of you can lead you to then want to build up that arsenal of torpedoes. Okay, I'll get you. I'll get you. I'll get even with you. That's the world we live in. That's how people behave. That's not how Christians are to behave, is it? So see, we have to resist the urge, especially to just give up, to not care, to be apathetic about our position. That's where we begin typically. If we don't just want to get even with them right away, it's just, well, I don't care now. You've been mean to me. I'm going to take my ball and go home. So see, this feeling is universal. You're not unique. We all feel this. And so you have to learn to work through it. You have to learn to allow forgiveness to just wash all that away. We have to remember Colossians 3. And let's turn to Colossians 3, 23. Colossians 3.23 says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. In everything you do here, even if it seems like it's directly benefiting this person that is unworthy of my respect, to withhold that good is not right. And Jesus is not honored. And so, see, your goal should be to honor Jesus. Now, that was the third principle, and that was actually the one I began with. That's that God owns everything. And the fourth one is count your superiors worthy of honor, and I think we just covered that fairly well. And the fifth one is you must trust the Lord to direct your career. So let me say a statement that sounds very similar, but you'll see the difference, and we'll work through it. How you handle failure and disappointment depends on your character. How you handle failure and disappointment depends on your character. How you handle failure and disappointment transforms your character. So you see the two. So God will bring disappointment into your life. You will respond. If you don't respond well, then he will bring disappointment into your life because he's changing you. He's molding your character until... When he brings disappointment into your life, it reflects godly character. And so then, will God need to bring disappointment into your life? Maybe periodically as a reminder, if we forget. But once we've learned the lesson, really I don't think God has any desire to continue to force that lesson upon us. We've learned it. We've disciplined ourselves to deal with failure and disappointment in the right way. Can you do a job that you know you will not get credit for? As a matter of fact, not only will you not get credit for it, someone else that you maybe don't even like will get credit for it. Can you do that because you know it's the right thing to do? That's a hard question. We have to be fair in answering that. There are many times that I cannot do that, even still. I'll look back and say, oh, look at that. I missed a perfect opportunity to do what is right, but instead I did what is mean. I did what is selfish and self-centered. That's the way we are, but we must learn from this, just as Paul did. Learn from our situations. Learn contentment and learn to do the right thing. So will we do our best even if our husband doesn't notice? Will we do our best even if our boss doesn't notice? Because God notices. That's why. We have to always look past. It's like when you're driving a car. I don't know if you young drivers have been taught this. But when you're in traffic, you don't want to be looking at the bumper of the car in front of you. You've got to be looking ahead of them. Now, you can't forget them or you'll run into them. But if you're looking ahead, you'll see that there are brake lights up there. So, see, that's kind of what I'm getting at. You've got to be looking ahead. You've got to be looking higher than where you're now looking if you fall prey to this type of bitter thinking. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine says, Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And what that says is that if you can focus on doing something so well that it is easily recognized, that it is by far better than most others can do it, you rise. You will be appreciated for that, especially if it's something really unique. This is why I 
uh, value professional sports. A lot of people criticize. I mean, I just heard some guy got a $26 million two-year contract. I don't begrudge that guy $1 of that because sports is about the most openly capitalistic and, and, and uh, free environment that we have in this country. And these people are performing something that very few people on earth can do. And they are to be paid these enormous sums. We think, how on earth can that be sustainable? Well, they're just unique. I remember I read a book on economics, and it talked about uh, Michael Jordan, comparing Michael Jordan to this man who wrote the book. He said, you know, Michael Jordan might be a fabulous house painter. He's so tall, you know. He can get in all those hard places I need a ladder. But he's busy making millions and millions and tens of millions of dollars. And so, see, he's freed up the house painting space for me. I can do that now. I've got the corner on that market. So you see, there's a niche for all of us, and God has a niche for all of us. It's just we often don't have faith that he will direct us to that niche. And we might see someone else's niche and oh, I want that niche. That's my niche. Well, work hard. Maybe it is. But if you find yourself at 5'6", wanting to be a professional basketball player, I'd say, no, that's not your niche. It must be something else. So the last one is your status symbol must be the cross, not the dollar. And so money, power, celebrity, we know this, and we've talked about it often, but that is how the world measures success, and that is not how God measures success. And there, the Scripture is filled with, with illustrations of this. It is not the the wise. It is not the powerful and the wealthy that you see in churches. If they're in churches, they're there to be seen. They're not there to be with God. So see, we must not uh, feel that there is something else on this earth that we're missing out on. We're where we need to be. We are growing into who we need to be. What you want to do is become content, learn contentment with serving the Lord. So now, God has given gifts to men, and I'm actually going to get back to Genesis 4 now. I didn't forget. God has given gifts to men, and again, I'm going to point out some odd things about how God gives out these gifts. What we read, and I'll just read from 20 to 22 in Genesis 4, uh, talking about the children that Lamech bore, Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, this is Lamech's second wife, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. Cain was already obviously a farmer because he tilled the ground. That's what got him into trouble with the Lord in the first place because he was unwilling to trade with Abel to bring an animal sacrifice to the Lord. Instead, he thought, my fruit should be good enough for the Lord. That's what I made. I'm going to bring him my fruit. I have no reason to go get Abel's cow or whatever and present it to God. So see, it was Cain's pride in the first place in his ability to be a farmer, whereas Abel obviously wasn't. He was off ranching. So this is a difference. But so now you add to that farming, you add ranching, because now he's talking about the keeper of, of animals and dwelling in tents. And then you add to that musicians, and you add to that craftsman. And I want to point out a couple of words. In 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. All those who play the harp and flute. 
Now remember, these are Cain's descendants, hundreds of years after Cain. Cain's still alive, but hundreds of years after Cain was first born. And then in verse 22, and as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. Why, I ask you, why would God give such gifts to Lamech, this loudmouth, braggart, murderer, polygamist? Why? God has given gifts exclusively to Cain's progeny. He appears to have withheld them because every musician, every metal craftsman came through Cain, came through Lamech, came through his sons. So why does God do this? I mentioned uh, to Scott earlier that a movie came to mind as I was, I was at this, and I looked up in IMDb the, the line I wanted to share, and I was thankful it was there because I, I didn't know, I don't have the movie, and I didn't know where I could find it. But in the movie Amadeus, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's a very interesting movie, very moving. But it's about Mozart, and there is a man who was Mozart's contemporary, who none of us know his name. His name was Salieri, Salieri, I don't know if that's correct. Is that correct? Salieri? Um, so see, Salieri was a great composer, but Mozart was an incredible composer. And so Salieri lived in Mozart's shadow all of his life, and he hated it. He despised Mozart for it. And this movie is all about him. It's all about what was happening between him and Mozart, and it's told from his perspective. And it's, it's very, it's very uh, uh, disturbing in some ways, kind of dark, but it gets into the human heart, which is what I like about some of these movies. They just are so revealing of sin. This is what he said. He's speaking to a crucifix, and he's speaking to God. From now on, we are enemies, you and I, because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and give me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able. Now, I don't know if this is a real story. Is it a real story? Did, did Soleri kill Mozart through hard work? But in the movie, this man opposes Mozart. And Mozart is, meanwhile, just going through life. You know, he's all happy and go lucky. He's poor, but he's just this pleasure-oriented phenomenon. And Soleri hates it. And what's more, he hates God for having implanted such creativity into this insolent person. So see, we can feel that same way. We can look around at, at other people and think, how could God do this? There is a purpose. We should understand that purpose. We shouldn't just stop there and say, well, you know, there are some things we can't understand. No, you should try to understand if you can. And I believe you can. There's a purpose to God doing this. Now, why would God bless unbelievers with great talent as he's done? Okay, in the fall, our ability to fulfill the dominion mandate was compromised. God punished us with greater effort required to do the work that he had called us to do, greater pain for our women in bearing children to procreate. So see, both of the things he's punished. 
the two things that the dominion mandate, he has levied penalties against us. But he did promise ultimate victory, right? When he spoke to the serpent, he promised victory, that that serpent's head would be crushed by the victor one day. Satan still has great power and influence on the earth. But man still rules, though we do rule poorly at times. And Christ has won the victory. Yet he chooses to rule through his church, which at times is very weak, very impotent in ways. But again, this was in the worship service when we read the gospel. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is what Jesus said in the Great Commission. So see, Jesus regained what Adam had lost, the earth. He regained control of the earth and redemption of the earth. And Jesus had restored to him, once he had completed that task, heaven, which was essentially in escrow, waiting for him to return to heaven to take ownership of it. So Jesus has all power, all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus rules, but... Obviously, he has allowed Satan and his demons time on the earth. And I like to think of it as that they're on work release. So if you've ever seen a van parked alongside the road with a bunch of people in orange jumpsuits that are out there picking up trash, those are prisoners. That's Satan and his angels. They're just on work release for now. And soon they will be filed back into that van and carted off to the prison, never to be seen again. The dominion mandate is here, and then you've got the Great Commission here. See, they function together now. For man to fulfill his destiny on the earth, accomplish the dominion mandate, Christ gave the Great Commission. And so, see, our role has been extended we have the dominion mandate, but we also have this role, all of us as believers, and there are many in the church, like out in Westminster, that they kind of deny that the, that the Great Commission is for everybody. Oh, no, it's for everybody. He wasn't just speaking to the apostles. He wasn't just speaking, speaking to this elite. No, he speaks to all Christians. We are God's images on the earth, and we have these dual objectives now to take dominion. We are to serve God, live in unity it, with all that is in us, with men, to the best of our ability, and we are to rule over creation, and we're to save souls, make disciples, baptize them, instruct them in how to live. So see, God gives gifts to unbelievers then. Why? If he gave all the gifts to us, would we even want to relate with the unbelievers on this earth? We just go let them live in the ghetto, I think. We don't have the heart of God. We are much more hard-hearted than God is. Our God is loving, much more loving than we are. So God has given gifts to men, even the unregenerate men. These, these uh, people like Mozart was portrayed in the movie Amadeus. He has given them gifts so that we are forced to interact with them. And we interact in many ways. I mean, we all don't really have to go seeking whom 
to share the Great Commission with. We all have spheres of influence. We all have unbelievers that we work with at various jobs, that we live with in the same neighborhoods, that we participate in various activities in our communities. But are we living out the Christian work ethic in these areas? Do people see us as different? Have we learned what Paul had instructed us to learn that he learned, that lesson of contentment and working through the disappointments of life, continuing to behave in honorable ways with integrity, even when we're beaten down, even when we're mistreated? To the degree that we more reflect the world is a degree to which we have not been conforming ourselves to the image of Christ. Last week, we talked about men are images. Work is a way that we all have been employed to be those images. So what I ask you to do is to be that Christian witness in your home, in your place of work, that God has called you to be, that God is making you to be. Don't shirk that responsibility. That's one of our major responsibilities on the earth. So may we demonstrate a Christian work ethic to the unbelievers that we know. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your kindness to us. Uh, we who so often are so stingy with what little we have, when, Lord, out of your abundance you give to all, we thank you, Lord, for who you are, for how you model for us what it means to love, what it means to forgive, what it means to uh, be a person of integrity. So we pray, Lord, that you would uh, conquer sin in our hearts, uh, conquer the discontent that leads to resentment, that leads to bitterness. And we pray, Father, that we would instead uh, rely upon you, the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us to transform us into the image of Christ. We thank you now, Father, for this time together. And we pray that you would be glorified uh, through how we live, how we choose to live in the week ahead. Uh, open our eyes, Father, that we might see opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.